0: Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet David Kopek. David is an assistant professor of computer science and innovation at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. He is the author of Classic Computer Science Problems in Python, Classic Computer Science Problems in Swift, Dart for Absolute Beginners, and the forthcoming Manning title, Classic Computer Science Problems in Java. David, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, it's great to be here, Ben. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on the show as well. And just to kick this off, I was curious, what does it take to build great software? Like your philosophy on this?
1: Well, I think building great software is a combination of engineering, science, and art. I think um, you have to have the, the skills. So the skills are the fundamental engineering part. Um, you need to be able to analyze how it works. That's the science part, that's the computer science. Um, and then I think you also have to have taste and that's the art part. Uh, mm. I think you can build the same program in many different ways, but whether that program is going to really appeal to users is gonna depend on whether or not you have that, that thing that goes beyond the science, which is, which is the art. Um, what we can teach people in school is we can teach them the science, we can teach them the engineering, we can't always teach them the art part. Some people just have good taste, and some people don't. Um, I might not. Maybe that's why I'm a professor and not a um, not a you know very very successful app entrepreneur, which I you know maybe I wish to be earlier in my life. Um, but you can learn the science and engineering parts. So if you have the 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 taste, if you have the the goal, if you have the passion, um, you can you can get those other parts and put them together.
0: Excellent. Yeah, thanks for sharing. When I was checking out uh, your website, like it, I, I thought it was really clever actually because it was like, is this a restaurant website? It's all like computer science app, you know, uh, uh, curb appeal, but it's got like, it, it has the look and feel of like somewhat of like a restaurant. Um, anyway, I, I thought it was kind of cool. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, when did you first become interested in software?
1: Well, I'm one of those people who started when I was a little kid. And I know that's kind of a boring story because a lot of people uh, who are in software development started when they were really young, but I was lucky that my dad was a computer science professor. So he started teaching me programming when I was like eight years old and I just mm. stuck with it, you know, ever since. Um, I, I, there was times in my life where I wavered a little bit, like I was actually an econ major in college um, and I went back and did a master's in computer science but um, I've, it, it always came back. It always was, it was a passion from a young age and I never, I never forgot about it and always somehow my life would take me on pathways back towards it. Hmm.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And what would you consider your first success with writing software?
1: Well, I guess it depends how you measure success. Uh, if you mean getting something that I was proud of then that would be, you know, those, those simple games you start building when you're, when you're just starting out. If you mean something that other people used, when I was a teenager, so like 14 years old, uh, I started writing some really simple apps for the Mac. This is like 2001, 2002. Uh, I was 14, 15 years old. I was in high school and Mac OS 10 had just come out. So it was just the transition from the classic Mac OS to Mac OS 10. And I had been starting to learn objective C and the Cocoa frameworks for building, building apps on the Mac. And I came out with a few really dumb, like simple apps, but back then the, the Mac OS 10 was so new and there were so many things missing still that people would download just about anything. Hmm. And so I, I made, there's three apps. I remember I, I made a really simple MP3 player, um, and of course, iTunes was out too at that time. But for some reason, I don't know people downloaded my MP3 player, uh, the, I made a, um, an app called URL Box, which stored, it was just literally like stickies for your URLs that would launch in your web browser um, hmm. on your desktop. And I, again, I don't know why people downloaded it from you know, 14-year-old quality software, but some it got thousands of downloads. But then the one that was the most successful was I made an app called Compact Compact Disc Player. And actually other people <laughs> helped me, like some, somebody, some other people contributed some code, somebody yeah. contributed some icons and stuff. And the whole idea of it was, believe it or not, back then, when iTunes would play an audio CD, it would actually use a lot of your CPU. And so this app was much smaller than iTunes, and all it did was play audio CDs. And that was actually something people still wanted to do in 2001 on their computer. And so because it used one third as much memory and one third as much CPU time as, as iTunes, people actually downloaded it to play CDs. So I I guess that would be my first successful piece of software. Of course, it was totally free and it was totally low quality because it was made by a 14 year old, but I guess it filled some kind of need. There was some little niche there.
0: Awesome. No, that's awesome. What is this CD that you speak of? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. Uh, what drives your passion for computer science education?
1: Well, so I, I got into it in my mid-20s. I'm a pretty young professor still. I'm 32 now. I'm about to turn 33 next week. Um, and nice. my, my, um, when I was in my mid-20s, I was doing a couple startups after I got my master's degree. And I started getting interested in this programming language called Dart, which was coming out from Google. Um, Mm -hmm. And they were originally posing it as kind of a replacement for JavaScript. That's not what ended up happening with it. Now it's used for Flutter, uh, which is their cross-platform mobile app development framework. But Mm -hmm. back then it was supposed to be a replacement for JavaScript. And I really didn't like JavaScript. So I was kind of excited about Dart. Uh, And so I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm really excited about this. And I've always wanted to write a book maybe there's an opportunity here because this is so new to write a book about dart for people who are just learning programming, because maybe this thing is really going to take off because Google's behind it. Maybe it'll be the next JavaScript. So why don't I get in there? I'll write a book proposal, see if they'll take me. And a press took a chance on me and we finished the book. Um, The book did not sell well because dart did not do well. Uh, Dart now is doing better now that flutters out. But back then it was a total disaster in terms of adoption. Like, the adoption curve was linear, not, you know, not exponential. You know, yeah. people, people using the language. And then Google announced they weren't going to include it in Chrome, because they originally said, Oh, we're going to include the Dart virtual machine in Chrome. And then they, they pulled back on that. And then adoption of language even slowed even more. Um, but I wrote this book, and the book I thought was a good book. And Back then, a lot of people thought it was a good book. Now it gets bad reviews because it's very outdated. It's like six years old and Dart's mm-hmm. changed so much because it's a young language. But back then, it was getting great reviews the book. Google even helped promote it. Some of the guys who worked on the language were 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 in the uh, were interviewed by me in the book. And they even put it on the Dart blog. You know, they really helped. So one of them wrote the forward. It was wonderful. Google was very supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it was a great experience, like writing that book and getting getting that support from the DART community and everything and, and from Google and Apress, I just had a great time. And that kind of led me to start doing some adjunct teaching in New York at a community college. And th- those two things eventually led me then to this full-time position as a professor up here in Vermont, which I've been at for the past four years. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it was a gradual process, but then the whole thing in the back is my dad was a computer science professor. So I kind of knew what that was all about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I loved being an app developer. While I was doing this stuff with the book, I first was doing a couple startups. They didn't go so well. Then I was doing um, consulting, building iOS apps for people, uh, and I was doing okay at that. I wasn't—I wasn't like the best salesperson, but I was a pretty good developer, so I was doing okay at that. Um, and, but but the book thing just gave me a real rush, and then being in the classroom. Um, teaching people gave me a huge rush. So, so it seemed clear that, you know, I, I should, people were like, you know, you, you should pursue this. You should, while you're, while you, st- while you have this moment here where, where, mm-hmm. you know, people know you maybe a little bit for the book and stuff, maybe you have a chance here to, to turn this into a full-time career. So I went for it and and it worked out.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. Um, how did your, so regarding the classic uh, computer science series uh that you that you've been building how did the ideation for that how did that work
1: yeah so all of my books have been my ideas so sometimes there's when you see tech books there, there's kind of a lot of them where the publisher actually reached out to a bunch of potential authors and mm-hmm. they were like you seem to have the skill set to write this book why don't you write this book but these were all my original ideas that I pitched to multiple publishers and you know, some, were, some said yes, some said no. The mm-hmm. Class Computer Science problem series started out with I'd written the Dart for Absolute Beginners book as a book about an emerging language, Dart, right? That was in a particular niche for that emerging language, which mm-hmm. was Absolute Beginners, obviously, right? Um, then I w- Swift was the next emerging language that I was excited about, um, and because I'd been a, an iOS developer. And I was like, maybe there's another niche here. The niche might be that everyone's coming out with app development books for Swift, but is anyone coming out with computer science education books for Swift? So that's Mm. something a little different than what other people are doing. And at the time that I was writing the book, there weren't any, but by the time the book came out, there were other computer science education books. But anyway, the, the idea was let's take this emerging language, but let's use it as a medium to learn computer science. Um, hmm. Because there might be people who get into app development, but they don't really know computer science, uh, which are two different things, right? Software development and computer science are related, but they're not the same thing.
0: Hmm. Maybe you could uh, differentiate those real quick for us.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of different definitions of computer science, but it mo- most broadly, computer science means how do I use computational tools to solve problems? And that is very broad. There's so many different subdisciplines, right? Mm-hmm. And it's something that emerged out of mathematics, uh, software development is exactly what it sounds like. Software development is how do I make software? Now, you usually need to use computer science techniques to make software, but uh, programming is one subset of computer science. Computer science is a much broader field that includes things like algorithms, computer vision, artificial intelligence, you know, a, a whole broad of range of subdisciplines. and software development is just an applied part of the programming aspects of that.
0: Mm, Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. It almost seems like, well, you're probably getting like a really good understanding of, well, you know how the, the levels of mastery work, like uh, you learn and then you teach and, and so, uh, but it seems like, it seems like you're doing some sort of like a Rosetta code because you're teaching the principles of computer science, all these different angles. I mean, your mastery has got to be like you've got to be feeling like you're really attaining mastery with this.
1: Me personally or the readers yeah. of the book?
0: You, well, well, the readers of the book are reaping the benefits of getting like a, you know, your brain uh, and how you work through these things. But the, but like you particular, like you're doing the computer uh, science concepts with Java. Um, the, the, the dart or yeah. no, no, it was a. Uh, Swift. Python, Python and, and Swift. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. I, what's happening now and you're alluding to it is I'm redoing the same book in multiple languages. Yeah. So the first book was in Swift and it did pretty well. Like the Dart book didn't do well in terms of sales because the language didn't take off. The Swift book did okay. Like it was selling okay. And the publisher said to me, Hey, I think the content's really good, but let's do it in a more popular language, right? Because mm. Swift, is, Swift is a popular language, but it's not, it's not Python. It's not Java, right? It's not, yeah. it's not a top five language. And so, we took the, the content, we really made it very Python specific. That was something we were really careful about is we didn't just want to port a Swift book to Python and then have Python code that looked like Swift. So yeah. we really took pains to, to use like really recent features of Python, really make, we had, you know, technical editors and development editors that really understood Python well to make sure that the code was really Pythonic. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, but then, but then the actual like written content beyond the parts about Python, some of that does stay the same between each of the books and it just took off. Like the Python book has done amazing. It's been a bestseller for the publisher. Um, and it, it's like maybe writing for niche languages was not the best strategy for me. I know this, this podcast is about entrepreneurialism a little bit, right? And Maybe, yeah. maybe my, uh, my concept of, of being in this niche is good when it's a big enough niche but yeah. maybe that the niche, the Dart for Absolute Beginners book was a ditch, niche within a niche. Yeah. And the, the class computer science problem in Swift was a niche within a niche. Both of those niches were slightly bigger than the Dart for Absolute Beginners book. But now the class computer science problems in Python book is a niche, which is people who are programmers who want to learn computer science. So it's not like as, as general as like a beginner's Python book, but mm-hmm. it's a niche within a huge ocean, right? Because Python is such a huge platform with with so many different developers in it and Mm. so so that book has been so successful it's been as successful as my first two books combined and so the concept here with the java book is well let's it's done well in python let's bring it to another popular language community Uh, because obviously the generalized content seem people seem to be responding well to as long as it's in a language that people are already using so so yeah so so i'm excited about that i'm working on that now we we expect it to come out late this year awesome
0: yeah and so there's uh there's two things that i thought of while you were you were sharing that one is the message that you're that that i'm getting out of what you're sharing right now is super powerful it's like you've got to kind of wrestle you you know you have this passion and you're kind of wrestling it and you finally found this thing that just like boom that you know some people might have been like oh you know maybe book writing's not for me or something like that but you stuck to it and I mean, eventually you figured out how to put the puzzle pieces together and it totally just, that's awesome. That's an awesome story. And then uh, the second part that I wanted to share was, so going through your, your uh, the Python book, I didn't get to go through every single page of it, but I was working through some of the examples and something that immediately caught me was it's like heavy use of the typing system. I don't think there's not a lot of learning resources out there where I've seen the typing system used like that. And I feel like, I feel like I was writing Python for like the first time. I was like, what is this that I'm writing? Like I, it was a really, it was a really cool experience and I look forward to continuing through it. I I know I'm like just talking blabbering here, but yeah, go ahead.
1: No, that's good. No, Ben, I'm glad you brought that up because it's by far the most controversial part of the book. Okay. So, (laughs) So, so anytime the book gets a bad review, which is not that much. It's gotten very good reviews. Yeah. But anytime it does get a bad review, it's because people didn't like that I used type hints so extensively throughout the book. I um, thought it was and, great. Yeah. And so it was one of the first books to do that. So Python added the the type hint system in like Python 3.4 or 3.5. And then they've been enhancing it in 3.6, 3.7 and 3.8. And mm-hmm. the book came out around 3.7. And so it's a new thing to Python programmers, and Python is known for its succinctness. It's known for how beautiful um, you can write a program in just in just a few lines, right? You can you can mm-hmm. write things uh, that that a hundred lines of Swift is fifty lines of Python. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, but then you add in these type hints, and suddenly it looks a lot more verbose, and that frustrates some people. Some people are like hey, uh, I don't like having to do all this extra typing and I don't like seeing all this extra stuff around my code. It's, um, it clutters it. And mm-hmm. if you understand what the type hints are trying to do and you get used to them, you realize that it actually improves readability. Because yeah. now instead of having to look through documentation, you can just look at the code and instantly know what the type of all the variables are, of the return type of a function is, of what the parameters of that function are. And it's nice to know that instantly without having to search through documentation as you Usually need to do in Python, um, mm-hmm. but people are not used to it, and I admit that I agree with them that it does maybe take away some of the beauty. It does make it a, a lot more verbose. Mm-hmm. So, so I can't argue with the people who who like that turns them off. Uh, and if I could do it all over again, would I maybe not have done any type hints? I have to be honest, maybe not because because that that's <laughs> the one thing that I get some bad reviews about. Yeah. Um, on the other hand. Um, maybe there's, I, I can't quantify this cause I, I, haven't done like a poll that would prove it, but there might be a significant number of people who bought the book because they're like, Hey, this is one of the first Python books that uses type hints throughout and I want to learn type hints. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there, you know, it's a, there's two sides to it, of course. So I, I can't, I can't do the counterfactual right now and prove to you that it's really been a negative. Um, it might, it might be that maybe it wouldn't have been a bestseller for the publisher if it didn't have type hints. So,
0: Yeah. They, they say in marketing, you, you just want to be polarizing. So like, like, uh, you can't, you can't be, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're certainly guilty of, uh, pol- being polarizing with it. So I I love it. I, I thought it was great.
1: Cool. Thank so, you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it, you might've actually already answered this question. I was curious why you selected Python, Swift, Dart and Java as programming languages to teach Classic computer science problems, but really it was more of like what's got traction. And is that, that was kind of your main angle?
1: At- well, so, so each mm-hmm. of them was a different reason. So Dart was because I was really excited about the language, and that's how okay. my, my writing career kind of all got started. And that, that was way back in 2013 that I wrote that book. Um, and then Swift was because that was a language I was actually using a lot professionally. So mm-hmm. I, I was, Swift came out in 2014. And I was an early adopter and I was using it on iOS projects as early as 2015. And I was involved in a bunch of open source projects in Swift starting in 2014. So by Mm -hmm. the time I was writing that book, which was in 2017, I'd been like deeply enmeshed in the Swift world for about three years then, which isn't like a huge amount of time, but it was the language that I was really excited about at that time. Um, And then Python is something I've been using professionally for a long time and then also was using in the classroom. So we mm-hmm. teach some of our classes in Python. And so when the publisher, the publisher said to me, hey, we should do it in Python, can you, can you be the person to do it? It was a natural fit. Um, so now yeah. Java, Java's one we do use in a couple of our classes. We used to teach Android development in Java, although we're gonna be moving it to Kotlin and I teach that class. Um, but it's like taking me back to my roots because I learned Java when I was 12 years old in 1999. And so, and then I hadn't used it that much professionally. One of the startups I did was in Java, but that was also like almost 10 years ago now. Um, mm. So it's ta- I haven't been heavily involved in Java beyond teaching this one class in Android uh, the last few years that's going to Kotlin. Um, so this is like taking me back a bit. And this is the language probably that I have the least recent professional experience in, other than Dart, because obviously nobody had experience in Dart. Mm-hmm. But uh, of the four books, this is the one where it's like, I'm um, digging a little into like, what's the be- latest best practices and really doing my research to make sure I'm up to date.
0: Yeah. So by the time you crank that thing out, you're going to, you'll have, a you'll, you'll probably have a very good grip on uh, like the modern, modern Java development type or, or is that a fair statement, I guess? Yeah. No. Okay. I, and you
1: know, Java is changing. So, you know, there's, there's Java eight, which has been kind of the big version for a long time now because Android's stuck on it. And a lot mm-hmm. of it, you know, and a lot of enterprise web apps are also stuck on it, but they've been evolving the language They're up to Java 14 just came out this month. Um, and there have been big changes, not like earth shattering changes, but there have been significant changes from Java 8 to Java 14. And so one big decision I had to make is like, what version of the language do I target the book for? What's going to get the most readers? Um, and so originally I was thinking maybe I should even do Java 8 because Android's stuck on Java 8. But eventually I I settled on the next long-term service release, which means, you know, it'll be supported by uh, Oracle for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I went with Java 11 for the book. I'm thinking about maybe there's some new features in Java 14. One's a preview feature called records. And I'm thinking, hey, maybe I want to use that and show I'm really up to date on Java and that will attract people. Because one thing people liked about the Python book was that I used some of the latest features in Python. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so I'm thinking like, should I use the latest version? But the problem is when you look at statistics, there's just very few people actually using the latest version of Java. There's a, there's a lot of people on Java 11. There's even more people on Java eight, but there's almost nobody using Java 13, Java 14. Mm. So it seems to make sense to kind of stay with the last long-term service release and keep it on Java 11. But anyway, maybe that was, that was way too much detail. No, that's,
0: no, that's good. Uh, thanks for the color. I I, I was kind of curious. I know there was some sort of uh policy with oracle where the licensing became like prohibitive for a lot of people to kind of like go all in with that language what is your view on on that whole situation or is there much to say i don't know
1: yeah so i i I don't know all the details but what i do know is that it there were a bunch of people who were turned off by the licensing change but most of those people are migrating to openjdk which is the, the openly licensed uh, version that, that the Oracle version is actually mostly built out of anyway. And I understand that Amazon is also has their own supported version that has different licensing terms as well. That's kind of like a, a pseudo fork of open JDK, but stays up to date with it. Hmm. So there are alternatives out there. Um, and I, I think ultimately what's just going to lead to is even more adoption of open JDK. So I, I think Oracle's kind of shooting themselves in the foot a little bit, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, it's, they manage the open source project too. So I guess, you know, as long as people are using Java, it's good for them, but it's, uh, you know, it's much better for them if they're using the licensed version, of course. So I don't know why they did that. It's puzzling to me.
0: Yeah. Uh, And this might be showing uh, some of my ignorance in this space here, but is your Java book going to be focusing on the open JDK then? Or?
1: So it shouldn't matter which version you're using as long as you're using the same Version or higher. So as long as you're using a Java 11 Implementation whether that be the OpenJDK one or the Oracle one or the Amazon one okay. um, The book will, will work with any of them because they, they all follow the same standard library. They all follow the same language standards
0: Excellent. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I I love how I get I get educated on the podcast as well. So thank you
1: <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs>
0: um, Yeah, I was curious what are some principles a newcomer to computer science should learn that solves like 80% of the challenge of being like self-taught.
1: Okay. So if I had to put like one general like term for it, I'd call it algorithms and data structures. Okay. So if, if there was one like area that somebody who is a self-taught programmer, so they maybe they have a couple years of programming experience already, but they don't really know quote unquote computer science to get into, it would be algorithms and data structures. I mean, that's, that's still a very broad area. Um, There's, there's, you know, millions of different kinds of, of algorithms and data structures. Uh, Some essential ones that everyone should know, everyone should know search algorithms. Everyone should know sorting algorithms. Everyone should probably know graph algorithms. Um, You might nowadays in the modern world, it's healthy to know a couple machine learning algorithms uh, and kind of how they work. It doesn't mean you're going to go implement them from scratch and you never should. You should be using libraries. You should be using third-party libraries off the shelf because you're not going to write a better, you know, clustering algorithm than scikit learn is going to give you off the shelf. Mm -hmm. So you should, you should, but you should understand how they work because how do you know which one, which technique is the right technique to apply if you don't really know what they're doing behind the scenes. Uh, So the difference, the difference between writing any, anybody, even if they don't know computer science can write good software, but can they write efficient software? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe they won't be able to write efficient software if they don't really know which tool to choose, which algorithm, which data structure to choose. Um, So we want people to not only write software that is appealing from a design perspective or a functionality perspective, but we also want people to write software that is efficient in terms of its use of machine resources. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is both good for your user cuz they're going to like your software better if it runs faster and performs better but this is also better for the, frankly for the environment it means your software is going to use less electricity it means it's going it's better for your network it's going to use less network resources if you're writing it as efficiently as possible so hmm. uh, learning computer science won't necessarily make you a better make you give you abilities to write software that you couldn't write before it's going to give you the ability to write better versions of the software that you could write before.
0: Yeah. And, uh, well, f- first of all, like those little categories that you kind of mentioned about the sorting algorithms and then a little bit of the artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. I, if I recall correctly, those are like some of the chapters in your book. So you kind of yeah. get it with the Python one. So you kind of get a good little tour of these applications. So there's a, there's a little, uh, plug there. And then the other thing that I thought of when you shared that was how, Uh, like it might give you some intuition that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have when you're like with the artificial intelligence stuff, for example, all the work that I've done with that, I've always struggled with like, what the heck is really going on here? You know? And so is that a fair statement? Like maybe it just gives you some intuition that you wouldn't otherwise have.
1: That's a totally fair statement and and you you hit the nail on the head. So thanks for the plug. I mean, that is the point of the book that you're not going to come out of the book having gotten the equivalent of a four-year computer science degree, but you're going to come out of the book knowing what people are talking about when they're, when they're talking about these different algorithms, when they're talking about these different machine learning techniques. Um, you're you're going to have enough to be dangerous, enough to um, – I kind of hate that term. I don't know why I just said it. But <laughs> anyway, you're going you're to know enough to be dangerous, enough to actually know which of these different techniques to, to reach for, and you're going to mm-hmm. gain that intuition to know, okay, this is the better technique for this problem. Um, so you, you have some problem and you're, you don't know, should I, should I be using, um, a clustering algorithm here or should I be using a classification algorithm? Um, and you, and by reading the book, you're going to understand which one of those to reach for.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love that because maybe you're not, you're not trying to provide, you know, the four year degree in a, in a few hundred pages here, but what it, if you're self, a person that's self-educating, it might be stepping stone that you can confidently go into like these other places to educate yourself knowing like, okay, I want to learn more about this. Now I know what to search on Google for. or go. that,
1: that's, that's exactly right, Ben. It's not yeah. a deep book. It's a broad book. Mm-hmm. It, it touches on a lot of different big subjects, gives you enough information about them to know what they're about, but doesn't give you every detail about them. And you'd have to go to, you know, to other resources. To, and from learn from reading the book, you'll hopefully learn the ones that you really want to know more about, and um, that that will lead you down that path and not lead you astray, steering into some that maybe you didn't really want to know that much about as well, right? Yeah. Um, so so it's going to give you enough tools to really know where to go to to get deep, but it's yeah. not deep itself.
0: Yeah, I I yeah. love it, and that and that's almost that. Like for me, like I felt like I was sinking my teeth into something new, but. I think I'm probably the type of reader that could benefit from something like that. Like if the, if this is a you know, I've, I'm not from a computer science background. I just I use code as a tool to solve problems, and I and now I see the power of it after doing this for uh, maybe like four years now. And uh, man, so thank you for writing that book. I'm looking forward to digging more into it. Um, let me invert that question though. Uh, what is overly difficult when self teaching computer science that newcomers should probably avoid at first
1: okay, uh, some people dig into projects that are that are not going to gain them results fast enough, like I, I remember talking to a student who was trying to write an NES emulator, and that 's a cool project that 's an awesome project. Yeah. I, I did that a couple of years ago, and you know it took me um, you know a long time, and I have like 20 years that I've been programming and it took me a long time, right? Probably not a good first project. Might be a good project when you've been doing it a few years, but probably not a good first project. You want to get results quickly because it gives you that confidence. It it gives you the confidence to keep going, right? Mm. Um, And if you you do something that's so ambitious that you're not going to see results in a reasonable amount of time, you could totally lose your interest and, and you could start to feel some kind of imposter syndrome or something where you know, you feel like maybe, maybe this wasn't really for me. And so mm. I think it's important to to do projects where you're going to get output quickly. So keep projects in a, in a reasonable scope uh, where you're really going to get some results within, let's say weeks or maybe months, but not, not years on your first project. Yeah. Um, so that, that's one tip. Another tip is just that, you know, all this stuff takes a lot of practice, you know, mm. and uh, you can't, it's just like anything else in life you can't be a good programmer if you don't practice a lot. Um, Just like you can't be a good violinist. You can't be a good, good at speaking Spanish um, unless you give it a lot of time. And so you you can't expect instant results. Like you can't go from, from zero to 60 um, in, in programming. You you can go from zero to five to 10 to 15 Mm -hmm. uh, and you can get to 60 every, you know, almost everyone can, but some people it takes them years. Some people it takes them one year, but if you try to go from zero to 60, you often get frustrated because it can be kind of deceiving when you first get going, especially in a language like Python, the first few steps are so easy, right? The first few steps are so easy, but then when you want to do something that's just a little bit harder, there's a whole bunch of knowledge you need to have to get to from to that next place. Um, And so it's easy to get frustrated. And so I I think it's important to remember that it's not going to happen overnight.
0: Dang. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. I catch myself being really kind of hard on myself often, uh, and like super ambitious. And, uh, I've definitely like, I felt like you were speaking like to my heart right there. (laughs) I mean, that's good advice, man. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, why do clients love working with Oak snow?
1: Okay, so I haven't been doing a lot of consulting since I took on this job in 2016, I have to be honest with you. So mm-hmm. it's been four years now that I've been working as full-time as a professor. And so I haven't been doing um, a lot of consulting for the last four years, really. Uh, but I was doing consulting for from about 2013 to 2016, so three years there. And mm-hmm. like I said, I was a good software developer. I was a decent software developer, but I wasn't a great salesman. And that was one of the problems I would actually like be, I was, I I would hate to say that I was too honest because I think you should always be honest, but I would kind of like always temper expectations on the first sales call. So when I was talking to somebody about a new potential uh, project, I would tell them about all the things that could go wrong, all the ways that we might not be able to finish on time or, or, you know, or or that we might need to bring in more, more developers, whatever. And so I, I would never like be the person who was like, just No matter what, we're going to get it done and be super, super enthusiastic from that point. So that was my bad part. But why do people like working with me? They liked working with me because at the same point, like going off that same thing, I was super communicative. Like I was Mm. telling them every little bit throughout the whole project. So I, I would, we would have, you know, I would make sure that we were having weekly calls where I was really going into the details about what's going well, what's not going well. So there were never any surprises. Um, and I, I think I'm pretty good at taking a technical topic and breaking it down and, and making it understandable to somebody who's not enmeshed in, in in the technical side and I think that that was something the clients really appreciated is yeah. they, they liked that I could really um, put it in words put any kind of problem that came up or the good things uh, into words that they could really understand um, so that that was Maybe that was my superpower as a consultant, but my, my lack of sales skills, which is something I think people can improve on, but you know, some Mm -hmm. people are natural salespeople. Um, and I'm probably not, uh, that, that was my downfall as a consultant.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. The, the communication piece that you mentioned there, like I just reflect on some stuff going on like at my work right now. And it's so, it's so loudly apparent, like communication is, it just is you know, a huge piece of the pie there. Um, and if you, if, if you're good at it, it's like, it's a, it's, it's a difference between a project going to the finish line or not. That's, that's what I, why I think it's so powerful what you just said.
1: And I think that's something that students don't get enough in every computer science program. Just to go back to computer science education is the teamwork, the collaborative side of software development, which is when you're writing software, you're actually communicating ideas. So whether that be to the end user of the software or that actually be to other software developers, which is why documentation comments are so important because Hmm. not, not everyone is going to think the same way you do. And when they read your code, it's not going to necessarily make sense to them right away. But if you just add a little bit of documentation, you can really, that really goes a really long way. And it's something that really needs to be emphasized to students.
0: Yeah. Wow. Cool. So, uh, being that it was a few years ago, maybe you've had some time to reflect on this. But I was curious, what was your biggest lesson learned from operating as a software shop and consultancy? Would you say? Um,
1: hmm. uh, biggest lesson learned would probably be um, that it. Well, I hate to go back to it again, but that you know, being. As consultant is not just about being able to do the, the software development work. It's also mm-hmm. being able to handle the client relations part. Um, yeah. And, and that actually those two things are probably just as important as one another. Hmm. Um, so if you're, you, it, what I should have done is spent more time building up my sales skills. So one thing that would be a problem sometimes is sometimes I'd have two projects going at once that were maybe pretty high income projects and I was doing really well And then there wouldn't be a pipeline where then I'd suddenly have nothing for a couple months. And then I'd have another great project again. Um, And then there wasn't necessarily something that lined up exactly. where when that one finished, I'd have another one that started. Sometimes I'd have to turn down projects because I already had one or two going that were big projects. Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to, if I had had the sales skills to like, can, be a little more convincing and say, "Hey, you really do want to go with me, but you're going to have to wait a couple months till I finish this current project. Yeah, but I'm going to be the right person to do this. Um, maybe part of that's confidence, almost right. Um, mm-hmm. If I worked more on the sales skills side, I could have been even more successful as a consultant.
0: Man, yeah. these like these types of war stories are so invaluable to people that are trying to figure out what this landscape is. I've I did some consulting." Uh, kind of of like in oil and gas, I'm sure you've seen like when the oil price goes down, people lose their jobs. Like that's anyway, like this happened a few years ago and I was like, I was like, what am I going to do? Cause I had just gotten laid off and I, I started doing some consulting with software and before you know it, same thing, like what you're talking about, like when it rains, it pours and, and then you're doing all this work and you're not doing the sales work. And then when the work dries up, you're like well, crap, I better go get some more work. Like this is a real, like what you're talking about is uh, like freelancing is like the sexy thing they talk about, but like, this is what you're getting into here, folks. when you, when you start this consulting, uh, you know, the app consultancy or data consultancy. So
1: absolutely. I mean, you have to be able to build a pipeline and it's yeah. kind of, like you said, it's kind of feast or famine. I feel like people right now with what's going on in the world with coronavirus and everything, right? Mm-hmm. How do you manage the pipeline during that? I mean, yeah. you know, and there, there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with, with being a consultant. Like, just like being, you know, your own boss in anything, there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with it. But yeah. um, it's, it, it's not for the, the faint of heart, let's say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Man, since you opened up the coronavirus can of worms, I'm going to go there real quick. Cause, uh, uh, basically, um, yeah, even for people that had jobs right now, like they, like you're, you're putting your eggs in baskets, whether or not you work for yourself or for somebody else. And it's the conundrum that you're talking about. It's like, man, not only if you're a, you know, if, at least if you got laid off, you might have some sort of like financing from the government or something like uh you know that type of thing but yeah holy cow like it's just multiple streams of income i i see how it's so powerful now even in this time so what what you're saying is very powerful you want to keep this pipeline full
1: it's it's very <laughs> tough to be uh i get the oil and gas joke yeah uh, it's very <laughs> tough to be self-employed right now and yeah. you know, my heart really goes out to people who are self-employed right now because you know it's it's uh so, so much uncertainty.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, regarding uh, your apps that you got in the App Store, I was I was uh, checking those out, and you've got you've got a handful in there. And I was wondering, what was your biggest lesson learned from creating apps to sell on the Apple, the Apple Store?
1: Yeah, so that's a total side business. You know, it makes you know a few thousand dollars here and there. It's not not a um, not a main source of income, but it's something I just do for fun. Yeah. Um, and so the, the apps I've done the last few years, I, I did this app for learning chess and playing chess on the Apple TV called Chess TV. Um, I've done an app for learning programming. It's actually a simple programming language called Sea Turtle um, for the Mac. And I've done an app called Restaurants for the Mac, and uh, which is like a Yelp client, native Mac Yelp client. Um, I've done... Um, I've done Poems, which is a social network for anonymous poetry on the iOS yeah. app store. And that's been out for like 10 years. So there's a huge archive of poems on it. Uh, so I've done a lot of like random kind of just things for fun on the side. Not mm-hmm. big money makers, but um, what I've learned from them, I would say uh, the one that's that's the most interesting probably is Chess TV, actually. Even okay. though it's probably the, the might be the least sophisticated of all of them. Okay, um, But What happened, the story of that app is that when the Apple TV fourth generation was coming out in 2015, uh, Apple actually sent people who had previously published apps on their stores free Apple TVs to encourage them to develop apps for the new platform. So I was one of the lucky people who got a free Apple TV fourth generation. And the, you know, the implicit agreement is that you're going to try developing an app for it. so I thought, okay, you know, my dad was an international chess master. I like chess, I'll, I'll write one of the first chess apps for this new platform. Mm-hmm. So I did and actually like a lot of people downloaded it. Like I actually, you know, again, it's thousands of dollars, not, not like tens of thousands, but still mm-hmm. um, for something that I didn't put a lot of time into. And how did I not put a lot of time into it? I didn't reinvent the wheel. So I used a really good open source chess engine From a guy named Michael Fogelman, uh, who's a well-known developer called Mr. Queen. It's the name of the name of the chess engine. But so I spent all my time building the user interface for tvOS instead of spending my time uh, building a chess engine. Right. And so that was that was an area where in like 20 hours I was able to build something that made thousands of dollars. Right. Because I was leveraging components that were already out there. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was an open source component with an open source license. In fact, Michael liked it and, you know, posted a blog post about it on his blog. Yeah. Um, so, so I think the lesson there is like, if you can avoid reinventing the wheel and you can leverage resources that are already out there, don't have this like not invented here syndrome that you have to do everything yourself, right? Yeah. Um, because I was still delivering value by, by wrapping it up in a nice interface. And I also bundled it with a bunch of chess puzzles and things like that. So that there can be value to um, to how you present something that doesn't have to be that you did the most amazing technological feat in in what you created.
0: Hmm. That's a that's a really cool lesson learned, and uh, I I certainly can't argue with with that. That's awesome. Um, regarding, let's see, when when starting a new project, kind of going back to your consultancy days, and and actually pretend I didn't even say that because this might be super relevant to what's going on right now. When, when starting a new project, what are the steps you recommend to design a clear specification?
1: Oh, that's, that's a really great question. Um, and so I think it's going to depend a lot on what it is you're building. So I'll give you, um, four different scenarios. Sorry. It might be kind of long. Go for No, this is,
0: this is the gold right here. You're going to get your money's worth folks.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, so it depends. I'll I'll give you four different kinds of projects, a book project, a client project, an app development project, or an open source project. Okay. Mm, okay. Um, so, so, usually I'll start with the easiest one. An open source project, a lot of them that you do, they're they're projects of passion. Unless you're doing it uh, f- for your job or you're doing it for, um, for some kind of group, you're usually doing it. It's usually a project of passion. So, I don't mm-hmm. think if you're doing an open source project, it's super important that you have a very clear specification when you start out. I think you want to get something running quickly so you can attract other people to it as quickly as possible and have something to show. And then you kind of backfill sometimes the specification and where where the aim is. Mm -hmm. So I think that's very different. Um, And I've had a couple like semi-successful open source projects and that's been my experience is that getting something out there that other people can use is fast is more important than having the, the most beautiful specification and documentation before you start. Mm-hmm. With a client project, when I was doing consulting, it's all about listening. It's about on those first couple of calls, uh, having some really good uh, notes and actually having a collaborative process with the client about creating the specification. So what I had is I had a template document that you know was a sample of of what an iOS project looks like in terms of Timeline in terms of uh, libraries and apis that need to be used in terms of screen flow uh, Sometimes I'd have a few wireframes in it and I would build that document collaboratively with the client um, And so they they would be a, they might even be a bigger contributor to it than I am. And Usually they would be mm-hmm. uh, And then we would talk about what's reasonable within a certain budget and within a certain timeline to fit into that document um, Then on a book project I think it's, now we talked about this earlier, there's kind of two different angles there. There's the angle where the publisher is looking for you and -hmm. there's the angle where you're making the proposal to the publisher. Now, I only have experience with the one where I'm making the proposal to the publisher. I've been pinged before by publishers to write various books, but I've never pursued any of that. So I've only been in the situation where, where I was doing it. And, you know, publishers, they really want to see the market fit for your book because there's a million technical books out there but only a very few of them actually make money. Um, So what they want to see most in your proposal is where's the market fit? Where's the audience for this book? And is that audience large enough to justify us investing in all the resources that go into publishing the book? Mm. Um, So, so you actually want a really deep specification. Usually they ask for a um, annotated table of contents, but if you can go even further than that and actually present the first couple chapters, that's going to actually put more of the cards in, in your deck because when you start negotiations with them, if they can see, hey, he, this person's actually a good writer or this, this person actually knows what they're talking about and they can actually get chapters done, that's going to be a lot more powerful than just presenting that annotated table of contents. Mm-hmm. So even if they don't ask for those first couple of chapters, I would provide them anyway. Um, but most of them will be very happy to have those first couple of chapters. And some people worry about that. Some people are like, hey, you know, I don't want them stealing my work. And, you know, that actually happened to me too. Uh, there was a book that I was actually, it was class computer science problems in Swift. I presented it to one publisher. I'm not going to say who, because I'm, you know, very angry with them, uh, <laughs> but I don't want to, I don't want to have anything too negative in this podcast, yeah. but they went and took my book idea. And when I turned them down, they actually made me an offer to, to do the book with them. And I chose Manning instead of them. They went and got another author to write the book that I had proposed, reusing my table of contents verbatim, And on the page on Amazon, before it came out, they forgot to even remove my name from it. Oh, wow. You believe that? (laughs) I mean, how crazy is that, right? That's crazy, man. And then even crazier, the guy that ended up doing it lives only about an hour from me here. And he came to a meetup, not remembering who I was. And it might not even be his fault, right? Because like the publisher, he had written previous books before. And so the publisher probably found him. It wasn't that like he was purposely going to take over my project and steal my my uh you know my, my table of contents and even my chapters or whatever mm-hmm. um but but anyway so it was really ironic though when, when i met him and, <laughs> yeah. you know he didn't know who i was but anyway wow. my, going back to your question i think it's important to have in, in this case so what we said with an open source project maybe you don't need much of a detailed specification at all uh, but when you're doing a book proposal you want to be as detailed as you can
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and you you want to really show the publisher that you know what you're talking about and, and really get into a lot of depth. And then the last one, uh, when you're doing an app development project and I'll say actually, there's another one here too. When you're preparing to teach a class and you're preparing yeah. the material for that class, mm-hmm. it's a lot like the book project. You want a really detailed specification because that first day of class, when you have that syllabus with the students, that's like your contract with them and yeah. they're going to expect you to stick to that syllabus throughout the semester. And so if you're not really prepared with the materials, for that syllabus, you're going to look like a real fool, you know, come a few weeks into the semester. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's another one where you want to have like everything laid out to the last T. Um, an app development project, the ones that I've worked on, and, you know, unfortunately at startups, we were always by the seat of our pants. Um, mm-hmm. When I'm doing them on my own, they're, they're kind of like my open source projects. They're passion projects. I've never worked in a huge enterprise like an Adobe or Microsoft. So I can't answer that question well. Uh, so uh, for, for that, for that sort of software development.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And man, I, I know, so I know it was probably kind of painful to to talk about that experience with the, like putting your ideas out there and stuff. I just think that's like a huge lesson for like, uh, people like, yeah, it's good to, it's good to have your ideas and, and float them around. Like you don't want to, you don't want to hold those inside because a lot of innovation can happen by sharing your ideas. But probably need to have like going forward. I don't know if there's some sort of like safeguards or something.
1: I don't want people to take that away from that. Uh, You know, because I remember back when I was, okay, so yeah, this was a particularly bad incident that we were talking about with this publisher, Mm -hmm. but you know, ideas are are not worth much. It's the implementation that matters. Right. So ultimately they, so let me actually add to the story. They came out with the book. That book did terribly. Okay. My book did great. They actually, the other publisher actually came out with that like copycat book and my, my book, okay. The Swift book didn't do great. It did well. My book did well. Their book did terribly. And so Mm. there was like, there was um, justice in in the world in the end. Yeah. There always is, but it mattered more that, that I wrote a good book than it did that I had a good idea for a book because you could have two different people writing the same good idea, Mm -hmm. but one person's actually going to write a good book and one person might not. Uh, and so this was also a thing back when I was doing consulting for those few years is like there'd be people who like, they won't even talk to me until I signed an NDA and I didn't care. Sure. I'd sign their NDA because you know, the vast majority of the time it's not a good idea or even if it is a good idea, it's not going to be successful regardless of who develops it.
0: Hmm, uh, so I was happy wow. to
1: sign the NDAs. I didn't, I didn't really worry about that too much, but if you're too secretive with your idea, you almost look a little bit silly to somebody who's seeing new ideas every week, right? Every week you're talking to a new potential client. Unfortunately, because I wasn't a good salesman, I wasn't getting most of them. But I was talking to a lot of people, and I was hearing a lot of uh, a lot of interesting ideas. But mm-hmm. how many of those companies that I heard about, whether I was the developer or four out of five times when I was not, did actually turned into big companies? I don't think any of them did. So yeah. an idea is not worth much until there's a good implementation of it, in my book.
0: That's man. That right there is possibly the most like exciting exciting piece of this whole um, like concept of like like ideation, like, man, if just execution is just a huge part of it. So if you think you're like the genius, like idea person out there on the podcast, like just become like the executor that.
1: That's right. Yeah. I love that, Ben, because, you know, that's one of the biggest problems that happens in these tech startups is that like, and I did two of them and neither of them ended that well, but I'll say the one thing I learned is there's oftentimes these like business guys, who have no technical skills and mm-hmm. they think the technical person is just like their uh you know they're like their donkey or something right mm-hmm. uh but and that wasn't necessarily the case with my co-founder i just say observing other yeah people generally speaking
0: community. uh yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but um but but they just think oh that, that's just the person who's who's gonna build my dreams no mm-hmm. the technical person is like critical they're your partner they're not your uh your slave and yeah. you need to really treat them with respect. And there, there has to be a two-way conversation. I mean, you're so much more of a threat if you've got both the business skills and the technical skills, right? And mm-hmm. maybe I didn't have the great business skills and I had the technical skills, but I think you have to have both sides if you really want to want to do something great. So maybe that can come from being a great partnership. Mm-hmm. But hey, if you're, if you're a business person out there and you have a great idea, why don't you learn to code? I, I hate to say it, right? Yeah. Because it sounds, I know that's like a, a bad word almost, right? There was a, there was a whole controversy about telling people learn to code. (laughs) But I mean, if you, if you're like, you want somebody else to work for you and you don't have any money, they're not going to work for you for free. Yeah. It's, you know, maybe it's worth, if you really think you have this big idea, maybe it's worth a couple of uh, years of your life sitting down and and learning to code. Mm -hmm. Um, That's going to be so, you're going to be a a real like threat when you can do both. When you can only do one, you're always going to be begging other people to be, to build something for you. Right? Yeah, but if you can actually build it, wow, that that's that's something powerful.
0: Yeah, and it seems like it would help you delegate. Like if it became a thing, if you're blind in this department, I mean, it it just it doesn't seem like there's a lot of risk to to teach yourself to code if you're the business person.
1: How do you know if the other person's really doing what they say they're doing if you don't even speak the same language as them? And code yeah. is a language, right? Um, and so if you don't understand what this person that's working for you or working with you is doing at all, at even the most basic level, which I've seen many times, mm-hmm. um, then you're, you're really going to be in the dark the whole time and they could be BSing you the whole time and you would never know.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. Um, how, uh, cause you, you had, uh. I think I saw this on uh, your website and I was uh, just wanted to pry a little bit here. How do you make sure that a client feels invested in the project? Like, is there some tactics that you have for that?
1: So I I think again, the communication piece is critical to that. So making sure that, um, that they always feel like they understand what you're doing at every step of the process. So And again, like I said, I wasn't the most successful consultant, That's, uh, but um, when I was doing it for those, those few years, I was always like making sure that, that I was explaining in great detail what I was working on at every step so that they always felt like there were no surprises or if there was a surprise, there's always going to be surprises. Uh, I remember I was working on an app called Jester, which was a, um, which was a social network for stand-up comedians, believe it or not. And it was a great guy, this guy, nice. really, really great guy named Justin Brownstone who was kind of leading the project and, and hired me to, to work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had, we had a hacker on this social network that only had 10 to 20,000 people, right? Like it's, it was a very small social network and why would anyone wanna hack a, um, you know, a standup comedian's social network, fledgling standup comedian <laughs> social network, right? Yeah. But I, I immediately, as soon as I saw it was happening, I called him even though it was like a strange hour on a weekend and we, we talked through it and I explained every detail about what was going on, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if I hadn't done that and communicated it and, you know, maybe it was my fault partially, right? Because obviously there was a security flaw that this person was able to exploit, right? Mm-hmm. But the immediate communication there um, and making him feel like he was invested in me fixing it rather than invested in my mess up perhaps, right, of right. even letting this happen in the first place uh, made it actually be an okay outcome in terms of our relationship between me mm-hmm. and him. Like, uh, if, I, if I instead had, um, you know, not explained in a lot of detail, not immediately come to him, right, uh, then it probably would have looked very different in terms of if we would continue working together after that, right? Yeah. But making him feel like he was invested in actually not just his app, but uh, even the flaws in his app, and mm-hmm. what i 'm going to try to do to, to fix them um, made him feel like he could trust me, made him feel like um, you know I, that I took everything about the app as seriously as he did
0: yeah man there's i I just reflect on our conversation so far like you couldn 't i mean you couldn 't pay money to to learn these things like you have been. Like the war stories that you're sharing are like, I mean, anybody that's listening to this, like, do you want to go and and experience this firsthand, or do you want to learn from somebody that that has these these experiences? Like, that's nice. This of you is to say, ben, priceless, but, you know, man.
1: That, that's nice of you to say, but I feel I feel a little bit like I'm blushing almost because you know my career is very short. Actually, I'm like I said, I'm 33 in a week, right? Right, right. Uh, I I worked in consulting, building apps for three years. I did. Startups for two years, and I've been a full-time professor for four years. Mm -hmm. So, and I I worked—you know—I had other jobs between college and graduate school. I worked on Wall Street for the better part of a year, but Mm -hmm. I have a short career. I'm only 33, right? And I was in graduate school for two years, so I only have like, let's see, 22 plus two is you know 24, and at 33, I only have nine years in the workforce. So I think you're you're selling it a little bit too much. Okay, I I did write. I I would say the. (laughs) I would say I have more experience writing books for my age yeah. than than most people do. So that's something I, I do know, you know, something about.
0: All right. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, tame or curb my enthusiasm on this, but like just myself being in the trenches, like I know, I just, I know how crazy things can get sometimes. And it's like, I would, I would do anything to figure out how to like, you know, do things better faster. So Uh, nonetheless, I will, I will, uh, thoughtfully disagree with you on that. I think you bring a lot to the table, my friend.
1: (laughs) That's nice of you to say that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, So, um, what are the attributes that you, uh, look for in either like the students that you teach or the people that you work with? Like, is there somebody that you'd rather like sink your time into because they have these, these type of attributes?
1: Yeah, I, I think being, um, open to, to new ideas and curious and, and interested in, in different ways of doing things uh, is really important in a student. Uh, mm-hmm. So sometimes one thing we see sometimes teaching computer science is a student who already comes in with a lot of experience. And believe it or not, students who come in with a lot of experience can sometimes be as frustrated as students who come in with no experience. And you might wonder, like, why is that? Um, the, the reason that, that happens is because they're so, they're already at age 18 or 19 set in their ways about how they go about programming. And we're trying to teach them best practices, uh, and they, their practices might not be best practices and believe it, and they, people actually can get resentful about that. Mm-hmm. It's almost like if you're a writer, right. And you take a writing class and somebody tells you, hey, I really, I really don't like your writing. Maybe your themes are okay, the story's okay, but you know, all your grammar's wrong and your spelling's wrong. And yeah. some people really take offense to that, or even, or even worse, what it sucks to hear as a writer is your style is bad. And sometimes mm-hmm. you hear that in a writing class, right? But that's basically what we sometimes are telling people who are pretty, already pretty advanced programmers when they're coming into a computer science program. So we have to tell them, hey, your style's bad. Like, You shouldn't be having these 100-line <laughs> these functions and yeah. you need to put comments in and you need to like actually take seriously, you know, your your variable naming and all these little things. And there's a lot of little things and they add mm. up and they get very, they get upset. They're like, but my program works. Right. But it, it gives me the right output. It, it passes your tests or whatever. Right. Yeah, it does. But it's also something that nobody else would want to ever read. And it's not something else. Other people <laughs> are going to work with you on what if, you know, if yeah. you have to collaborate with them. And so, I think being open to criticism, being open to new ideas and different ways of doing things as a student is like a really, really important um baseline. Uh when I work with other people, I I like to have people that um I can have a, a frank conversation with, that I'm not gonna offend them because I say something that um is, you know, um Makes the I say something critical. Uh, I, I, I like to think I'm a pretty straight shooter and I tell people things exactly like it is, not in a mean way, but right. in, a, um, in an just honest candid. way. Just candid. Yeah. Just candid. Yeah. Candid. That's a good, good word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who can't take that, that I, I sometimes, you know, it's tough. I hate to have to be on my tiptoes, like avoiding, you know, walk on eggshells all the time because I'm afraid I'm going to offend somebody when we're just talking about work stuff and I, I might just disagree with you about how to do something. So yeah. being able to take, I guess both of these are being able to take criticism.
0: Man, that's, that's uh really powerful. I mean, I think, I think when I'm, I'm always, maybe I'm like a weirdo cause I'm always seeking candor. Like I want the, like, like if, if we were in some sort of like a, like a, uh, like where money was on the line, like I'm paying you for like your results, you know, like not the sugarcoating thing. So I totally respect what you're saying there. That's, and the and the students are paying money for their degree. You know, right. they, that's what they, that's what they are paying for.
1: I love you know, it. What, you know, Ben, I've had to develop a thicker skin because I'm, obviously I'm not a celebrity, but I'm very much a public person in that. Right. People write public reviews of my books.
0: Right, people yeah. go
1: on ratemyprofessor.com, write public reviews of my classes, mm, right? Yeah. People write public reviews of my apps, right? So you have kind of this public persona, even though you're not a quote unquote celebrity, there's people like reviewing your work. And I'll tell you something, it hurts sometimes. Like wow, you, I yeah. when you sometimes I'll, what happened, The my Python book has been translated into seven languages. Oh, wow. One of the languages it got translated into was Russian. Okay? Mm-hmm. Somebody posted the most horrible one-star review of the Russian edition on Goodreads. I didn't even know about it until I translated it because it was in Russian. It was in Cyrillic, right? Uh-huh. And so I go and translate it and it is just like scathingly bad. And it's the worst review I think I've ever gotten in any book I've written. Uh-huh. And I think the Python book's good and the vast majority of reviews of it are very good. But you go and you read something like that and you take it personally, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually, it actually is a little bit hurtful. To, mm-hmm. to read it, to read that bad a review of something that you put, you know, a hundred, 200, more than that, hundreds of hours of your life into, yeah. you know, um, and but, but you move on, like, um, you, you have to be able, I think to, to do any of these things, to, to be a consultant, to be an app developer, to be a teacher, to be a writer, you have to be able to take criticism. If you yeah. can't take criticism, um, you're, because there's going to be somebody who doesn't like you. There's going to be a student who hates you. There's going to be a student, I've had this happen to me before, who tells you they're going to shoot you with a gun. Crazy. Crazy, right? Crazy, right? There's going to be a a reviewer of a book who's going to say that this is the worst thing they've ever read. If you're Mm -hmm. successful, right? Nobody criticizes stuff that (laughs) nobody reads, right? People only criticize. There's some great quote about that. I forgot what it is. Uh But people only criticize uh, things that are actually worth criticizing. Oh, it's the guy who created C++. Okay. C++ is like... (laughs) in my opinion, not the best language. A lot of people are not big fans of C++, but Bjorn Straustep said, well, you know, nobody criticizes languages that nobody uses, right? <laughs> and so, so, yeah, I, I mean, if, you, if you're going to have anything that actually gets used or that people actually care about, you're going to get criticism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the last, like, you know, few years being, being, especially being a professor and being a writer have been lessons in getting a thicker skin. Because Mm -hmm. I I think you know, I think I am actually a little bit of a sensitive person. But like, you know, the first it's like the Cat Stevens song, uh, you know, the first cut is the deepest, right? Mm -hmm. The first like time you get that really bad review, even if you had, which was the case in, in a lot of these cases, you had like 30 great reviews, 35 star reviews, whatever, right? The four and five star reviews. And then you get that first one star review. It really hurts. Yeah. yeah and when and mm. especially if if there's some truth to it and there usually is right people usually yeah. don't write long bad reviews unless there's at least a kernel of truth in them and when mm-hmm. you know when you know you failed and not just that you failed but you failed in such a public way right yeah um, you have to get to a point of acceptance mm-hmm. because if you don't get to a point of acceptance you're just gonna stop writing and you're just gonna like you know you're never gonna be willing to go outside your door again yeah so uh, that's, I think that's a cognitive behavioral therapy technique, right? Uh, when, I, when I was in my mid-20s, I got really sick with, with a pretty serious disease. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I learned from a psychologist was acceptance. You know, just kind of accepting that this is the way the world is. And if you don't accept, you can't move on. And it's wow. the same thing with, with taking criticism. You mm-hmm. have to accept criticism and move on and say, hey, you know, maybe, I, maybe, I did, maybe there are some things that are true about it. And you have to also have a, a level enough head that you go, okay, if, if I have 10 five-star reviews and I have one, one-star review mm-hmm. on balance, it's good. Yeah. But it still hurts. It still hurts. Sorry. That yeah. was a long. No, long no.
0: Time. I I'm, I'm really appreciating the, the conversation around that. It's like, it's, it's also kind of funny about the like the psychology piece where it's like, like just for someone even to put a review up, it's like, you you can't twist their arm like across the internet to do that, you know? So when people are like raving about it, like you've got all this like heavy weight on like the five stars and then this dude comes along or, or whoever. And they, it, but it's funny how like the focus shifts to like this thing, even though you're, it's clear that you've served like these other people like very well. And uh, yeah. so just, I think you mentioned this in your pre-interview about, like, uh, uh, something along the lines of like, keep going or like the, the failure kit, like, can't scare you. And it's like, this is just speaking right to it. Like, you're not going to stop writing books. Are you hell no. Like you're going to keep, you're going to keep doing this. And I love that attitude.
1: Yeah. I mean, but I'll be honest with you, right? If it wasn't for the good reviews, I probably would have stopped <laughs> right, writing books. Yeah. So if I, if all I was getting <laughs> with what was one star reviews, then it would be, you know, the universe is telling you something, maybe this isn't for you, you know, yeah. but, um, but I, you know, I think that's that's something we haven't talked about much. But I think as a student, also, you have to think about: Am I actually good at this? Mm. So there, there is a part to that, right? It's, it's actually rare. You, you believe it or not, there's almost no students who fail out of college because they're not smart enough or talented enough to do it. It's almost always work ethic, time management, um, health problems, things like that that lead students to to not make it through college. Mm. It's a very rare student who actually can't do it. You know, um, that, that's very rare. Uh, and, wow. but at the same time, if that's you, and this happens all the time, you're teaching somebody, uh, and you know that maybe they'll get it eventually, but not in this semester. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, it's not the, the typical student, it's the rare case, but you do see even the rare case, you know, you see every year. And it's kind of like, you know, maybe you're really, really good at, at marketing or you're really, really good at, at math but maybe programming is not something you're really, really good at. Mm-hmm. And accepting that too is a part of the learning process. And, and, you know, and yeah, you have to, you have to accept the things you're not good at. Right. Um, yeah. and I think that, uh, there's this thing that they say, like follow your passion. Right. And you know, I, I have uh, Steve jobs behind me actually here. Uh, I'm a super fan, I guess. Uh, and, uh, and you know, he has that famous graduation speech from Stanford, uh, considered one of the best graduation speeches of all time. But he was like, you know, you have to follow your passion, not do just what people told you to do with your life. You got to love what you do that, all that sort of stuff that, that people say all the time. Mm-hmm. But if you love what you do and you're truly terrible at it, maybe you can't make a living doing it. Right. Maybe you can't make, so, so you have to be practical in life too. Yeah. Um, and so to be honest with you, if I'd gotten all one star reviews, I would not continue writing. Right. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the ones that you do get don't hurt.
0: Yeah. Fair enough, man. That's, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. There's uh being extreme, I guess, with any sort of ideas is, is bad. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's good, man. Thanks for sharing that. Um, What, so I know you have the, uh, this blog called observational hazard is, is your blog and, uh, you're pretty pro like I was looking, you've got stuff going back to like 2012 on there and I was just wondering, uh, what are your secrets for creating a compelling blog post?
1: Well, I wish my blog was more successful than it is. That's nice of you to point it out. Um, I've had some blog posts that have gotten, you know, tens of thousands of views And usually it's when I hit something that really delivered value in terms of the content. So Mm -hmm. if I'm writing just about my life, like I recently wrote a blog post about, you know, one year of class computer science problems in Python. Mm -hmm. Um, Very few people read that because that's just like me, like, you know, going on about, things that went well, things that didn't go the last year. If you're not me, you probably don't care that much about what the last year of my book was like. Mm -hmm. Uh, You probably couldn't care less. But when I wrote a book on the history of web development, uh, sorry, when I wrote a blog post on the history of web development, Mm -hmm. um, that had thousands and thousands and thousands of views because it it was something that actually delivered value that wasn't well compiled in some free resource somewhere else on the internet. So I think finding like some content that you uniquely can offer. And it's the same thing with writing books actually. What is the thing that you can write better than anybody else? What is the thing that you're like, you really know a lot about more than anyone else or at least, you know, more than much more than the average person who might read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the thing you should write about. If you're just writing about like your life or the same sort of things everyone else is writing about, it's very easy to get lost in the crowd. But yeah, I wish my blog was more successful, but I, I don't put, um, probably enough time into what I'm just saying right now. I usually just write like, Oh, here's a book review of something I read recently. Why do people care my care about my opinion about some book I read? Right. Uh, but when, but if I really know a ton about the history of web development, which I think I do, mm-hmm. then when I wrote that post, it really struck a chord with people.
0: Excellent. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you loud and clear here, it seems like you're, you want to try and find this intersection between op- value. That's like one huge piece. And then, uh, I guess like, like how do you manufacture that value? It's like, you've got to have some sort of take on this thing that's unique and probably helps if like the topic is somewhat mainstream, like, like just high probability eyeballs will be on this topic. So is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And you have to know your audience. So like people who Mm, know me or follow me, right? They're following me because they probably read one of my books. That that's Mm -hmm. the main reason probably somebody would read my blog or follow me on Twitter. Yeah. Um, And so those people are gonna be software developers. So if I'm writing a blog post about like, again, like what my life has been like or like what my experience was at the grocery store, they probably couldn't care less. If I was Mm -hmm. a celebrity, they'd care. But because I'm like a public person, but not a celebrity, like we talked about earlier, right? right. They're going to care when I talk about the things that they followed me for in the first place. And yeah. so when I write about the history of web development, they're going to care. When I write about the grocery store, they couldn't care less what, my, what I think about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That man, that's knowing your customer, knowing your audience is uh time well spent. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so what are your, uh, Besides like your, your amazing, uh, uh, books, what are your favorite, uh, resources that you kind of recommend to people to, if they want to get up to speed with like programming, cloud computing, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of good free online, you know, academies now. I mean, I think, I think the Khan Academy specifically course on algorithms is actually very good. Okay. So if there's people who already know JavaScript and because they do it in JavaScript, that's why I know it's a Python podcast but, uh, it's all good. We can get along. We can all do Okay. Along. <laughs> so if you already, but even if you, if you already know Python and you don't know JavaScript yet, mm. they, they only use really basic features of the language uh, and you want to learn algorithms. Um, then I think actually the Khan Academy algorithms course is, is really quite good. I've, I've gone okay. through the whole thing myself to see if it's something I would recommend to students and it really is. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think nothing though, I, I hate to say this again though, but I think nothing beats practice. So if you're not motivated enough to practice on your own, then you're really not motivated, okay? Yeah. If you need that, that person like whipping you all the time saying, hey, it's time, because that's, that's what I was like with musical instruments when I was growing up, right? Mm-hmm. My, my parents wanted me to play them. And so only when they told me to practice, I would practice, right? But I wasn't really passionate enough about it. Um, but if, you're, if you love software development, you're going to naturally go and practice programming, right? Um, if, but if you're somebody who needs somebody to tell you to do that, it's probably not going to work out Uh, resources though. Yeah. So that's a really good um, class on algorithms and um, textbooks. My book is not a textbook, right? Um, It's a, it's a survey. It's a tutorial like survey of these computer science topics, but Mm -hmm. if you want to formally learn them, there are some very well established, excellent textbooks. Probably the best ones are algorithms by Sedgwick um, and introduction to algorithms by, by Corman at all. Um, so I, I think the, the algorithms by Sedgwick book is more approachable to people. Uh, it's really something you could actually read the introduction to algorithms book, even though I love Tom Corman, cause he was my professor in, in college, uh, is, and it's the number one selling computer science book of all time. But I hate to say that, you know, it's not quite as approachable for a student who's not a little more mathematically sophisticated as algorithms by Sedgwick is, uh, but mm-hmm. it's a great reference. It's the standard like reference and book. On, on algorithms, introduction algorithms. I will point out one more book and it is from my publisher, but that's not the reason I'm plugging it. Mm-hmm. Uh, rocking Algorithms is a really good algorithms book and it's in Python. Okay, and it is just an absolutely excellent, like very gentle introduction to algorithms and data structures. Uh, so it's a great companion to my book. So you could read them in either order. You could read Rocking Algorithms first and then read my book because my book goes into more different kinds of topics. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can read my book first and then read Grokking Algorithms to get a little bit more on uh, some of the more basic algorithms. Um, so I think that for Python programmers, I can't recommend Grokking Algorithms enough.
0: Okay, excellent. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm always uh, prying for learning resources and that sort of thing. So thank you. Um, alrighty, so after this one, I guess you're, you're kind of off the hook with the tricky question. So what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received?
1: Wow. That's actually, you know, that's a very common question people ask, but I've never thought about it. Um, what's the best piece of advice I've ever received? Um, I think uh, Thomas Jefferson has a quote that honesty is the first chapter in the book of wisdom. Um, I think being, and that's something my dad always said to me a lot too when I was growing up is that mm-hmm. the most important thing is that you're honest. Like even you can have a lot of other character flaws But, um, if people don't think they can trust you, uh, that is gonna on its own be your downfall. Like people will put up with you with a lot of other things, as long as you tell them the straight stuff, you know? Um, but, but the second that, that people aren't sure that you're really who you say you are, that you're really, uh, telling them what you should be telling them, um, that that's when you, you instantly will lose people's confidence. So I, I'd say the most important thing was, was my dad teaching me to be honest. Um, and I think that that that's where everything starts.
0: That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, what is, I know we kind of talked about the book uh, thing, but from like a non-technical book perspective, what do you think is like the most important book that we should read this year?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I don't know why, if I'm really an authority on that, um, I have a podcast myself called business books and company, I guess, you know, I w- that's what I would have maybe plugged at the end anyway. Uh-huh. Um, and we, every month we read a business book and we talk about it. Okay. Um, and, uh, a book that th- a business book that I've really enjoyed, um, I'm actually reading, wow, there's so many, but, uh, cause you know, we've, we've read now 10 for the podcast, but we've read, we, we did the club before then we've read probably, you know, 40 over the years. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're a person in the technology and you want to kind of understand uh, the the broader technology landscape, then I think actually the Steve Jobs biography. And I hate to say that, but you know, I, how can I not <laughs> say that with him behind yeah. me, right? Um, it really yeah. takes you through the personal computer revolution okay. and um, and how things have have gotten to where where we are today. And, and some of the the players in that, and and you know how how things, and it's entertaining too. So it keeps you keeps you engaged the whole time. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a few good ones. There's also um, there there's uh, there's like five or seven like very popular Steve Jobs biographies. I actually have a blog post maybe you can put in the show notes sure. called books about Apple and Steve Jobs. But um, I'd say if I had to pick just one book that I really loved, and because probably because I love Steve Jobs, but the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, um, I think is a really great book for for tech people who want to do something that's not just about like programming and software development.
0: Cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm also on the hunt for biographies. I'm working through the Richard Branson losing my
1: virginity. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I read that. That's his most recent one, right?
1: No, that's an older one. I haven't read the most recent one.
0: I think the most recent one is uh, finding his virginity. Maybe is what it's called. Yeah. It's like, cause he does the, um, it's all like segments of his life and I guess he felt like it was time to write another one. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm working through that right now. Uh, I love biographies. So I'm, I'm especially excited that you shared that one. So
1: great. Yeah, no, me too. I love biographies.
0: Yeah. Heck yeah, man. Uh, okay. So we have talked about many cans of worms that we cracked open today. What is the message that you want to leave the audience with, uh, after all these topics we, we discussed.
1: Okay. Uh, if you're a a software developer, but you never learned computer science, it's not too late. It's going to make you a better programmer. You're going to write more efficient software. You're going to write software that's more performance. Um, and your users are going to thank you and the world is going to thank you too because you know, we don't want to be using extra bandwidth, extra electricity. Um, so take the time to, to learn some computer science topics. And it's really easy to, uh, to get imposter syndrome uh, and and kind of give up on it pretty quickly, but you know you're you're not in class you you're already a software developer so what do you have to lose if you don't understand parts of it, it's not like you're gonna get a bad grade or something right <laughs> um, you you might as well give it a go because it, it's really gonna just having a little bit of knowledge in that realm is really gonna make you a better software developer so to learn mm-hmm. at least a little bit computer science try the Khan Academy free um, free course give it a shot, you know, and the worst that'll happen is you might get a little frustrated, but you know, it's worth it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And, and what is your call to action? Where do they go to connect with you? We've got a podcast that I totally did not, did not come up on my radar when I was doing yeah, my, no, my it's, research.
1: It's, it's stealth. Uh, okay, mean, stealth. We've had ten, well, we've had yeah. 10 episodes, but you know, we, we only have like 150 subscribers or so. Okay. So it's not, it's not a huge podcast, you know, it's, it's, it's fun though. Uh, anyway, to connect with me. Yeah. Classic, yeah. So for the books, classicproblems.com cat classicproblems.com describes the books. Um, mm-hmm. for me, if you want to connect with me, Twitter is the best way I'm at Dave Kopeck, D A V E K O P E C.
0: Awesome. And then uh, is the podcast on iTunes or where? Yeah. They-
1: yeah. It's everywhere. Uh, it's business okay. books and company business books ampersand co period. You know, it's with spaces between them. Yeah. Uh, you can also go to businessbooksandcompany.com. Maybe you can put that in the show notes.
0: Absolutely, man. I'm I'm super uh happy to to help promote that. Um, and I like to think I'm good with my research, I don't know how I didn't find the, like, like I said, we're not, we're, we're too
1: stealth, right? I don't know if it's, you know what it might be, Ben? Uh, it might be that we we're not confident enough that there's three of us, three co-hosts. Okay. That it's high quality enough that we're putting it on our Twitter profiles. yet. You know? <laughs> we're still like, yeah. we're still like a little cautious. Like, is this good enough to, to be promoting enough? I don't know. Cause we, we've had some episodes that were not very good and you know, mm-hmm. so I don't know, but maybe we should just put it more out there.
0: No, it's, it's all good, man. I, I know, I know for myself, uh, just, I feel like the first I'm, I'm on developer interview, like 60 something right now. Okay. But like my, my first, you know, my first 10 and my last 10 were like just totally different. I, and I'm sure like you've seen this just self education with yourself. Like, the more time you spend with it, the, the better it gets. But I've, I've also heard something too, like if you're not kind of embarrassed with like that first like iteration of whatever thing you're releasing in the wild, you're waiting too long to put it out there. So uh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to uh, help promote that. And I say just stick to it because I guarantee you, you know, a hundred books in or 60 books in, it's going to be a whole different show, man.
1: thanks I really appreciate that Ben
0: absolutely well hey this has been a blast thanks for everybody for tuning in David thank you so much and uh, we'll talk to you soon
1: thanks so much for having me it was a real pleasure
0: yeah you got it man